Mutability. Welcome to Nature's Lead. This is a podcast available at naturesleadcom that both examines and inspires a certain approach towards life that is based both on personal philosophies and on the writings of people such as Emerson and Thoreau. Please send any feedback to info at naturesleadcom or drop a comment onto either the blog or onto iTunes. This is Series 1, Episode 22, Title, The Great Fortune of Rough Emotions. Okay, welcome again. In this episode, I read a poem by Keats that helps me reflect on the power of rough emotions, and I also tell my humorous cemetery story. So we'll get to that in a second, but first, today's random window. I was in the mountains recently, looking at trees with no leaves. They're actually amazingly beautiful. It's not the skeleton of the tree at all. It's like seeing a woman's body with no clothes. It's so raw. The slope and shape of the back, the way the neck flows down into the chest, the smooth curves of the upper arm into the shoulder, the grooves on the back of the leg connecting the calf to the thigh. These are the things we normally don't see, but when we do see them, it's as if we're seeing the person or the tree for the first time. Thank goodness for love and for the seasons. On to the main topic, the great fortune of rough emotions. John Keats was a brilliant poet, but he also had a difficult life. I'm not going to say tragic. That word would be the first to jump to with someone like this. His father and mother died before he was fully grown, and he too died as a young man, never to see 30. But how do you call life tragic when it gave so much? He could have lived the happiest of lives, prospered until 80 years old, and never wrote so much as a comma. But what measure would be taken then? On whose scale would he score high? It's unfair to feel pity, it seems. Unjust, actually. Here was a great writer who struggled with depression and disease, but together, all of it, was exactly what formed his person. You can't remove a chunk of canvas from a famous painting without breaking its precise identity. Thus, I never feel sorry for Keats or Shelley or Byron. They all died young, and they died exactly when they needed to. Now, I'm not leaning us here toward fate or any known religion or anything structured by a rational mind. I simply feel that way. That's all. It feels like it's okay. And you know me, I'm often going to turn towards those feelings that naturally bubble deep within me. I think with age, I believe more in those feelings than before. When I was young, natural feelings about life were stronger and more frequent. I had tuned my inner ear to hear my quietest mind. But with age and the weight of civilization... The clutter of noise today muffles those gentle, emotional tugs and pulls. However, when I do hear them and feel them, a practice I now work on more often, I tend to believe them more. I take them as truth, as natural truth. But back to the poets. I always found it fascinating that Wordsworth, Coleridge, and Blake lived old into their 60s and 70s, but Keats, Shelley, and Byron died in their 20s and 30s. 
The first three wrote early in the Romantic period, and the second three wrote later in the period. Wordsworth spent a lot of time with Coleridge, and Keats, Shelley, and Byron spent time together. It's as if their spirits, their energies towards life, were as one, a union of hearts and minds, a shared eye into the world. Do you have anyone like that in life? Do you have someone that, if he or she should leave, you feel as if you may not be able to continue down the same path? If you do, and that person is surprisingly taken from you, then you or I have to be overwhelmed, eventually, by enthralled gratitude towards the natural world for having enabled such a fortunate time in our lives. Before Keats died, he spent time in Rome with Shelley. You can still see the plaque on the building next to the famous Spanish steps where they stayed for a time. Many of these poets and their wives had fascinating travels and discussions over those years. Don't forget that Shelley's wife, Mary, is the one who wrote Frankenstein as a result of one of these inspired conversations, and in this particular instance, a challenge to write the most scary story. But in regards to Keats and Shelley, they both were buried in Rome in the Protestant cemetery. I did my thesis on Shelley, so I was compelled to go there one time when I was in Rome. It's off the beaten path, quite a walk from the Colosseum. At the edge of the cemetery is a great Egyptian structure called the Pyramid of Cestius. It's quite large and sits along the main road. But hidden behind it is this Protestant cemetery, the place where non-Catholics would want to be buried back in those times. There are many noteworthy people there, including the only son of the great German writer, Goethe. There was nobody at the front gate, and I, in fact, saw no one at all while I walked around the beautiful grounds. I was impressed with the trees and foliage, essentially the natural feel of the place. It felt, somehow, very emotionally stark, thick with tangled stories of historic lives laid down to reflect. It seemed quiet there, with the large, thick stone walls insulating them from the modern-day lives that were scrambling around just outside. Keats and Shelley were in nondescript areas, Nothing fancy, simple graves. Shelley visited the place before he died and said, It might make one in love with death to be buried in so sweet a place. But as I was touring around the other areas of the grounds, I heard a couple of times a subtle jingle of these low-lying ropes along one of the paths. I didn't think much of it, as I assumed it had something to do with the watering system. I made my way back to the front gate, and, of course, the large gate doors were locked. I realized that the jingle must have been some kind of notice about closing. I slowly turned around from the gate, and I looked back at all these graves. There I was, locked in with the ghosts of Keats and Shelley. Famous scientists, architects, painters. They were all there, probably laughing, saying, We got another one. And at that moment, as I stood there looking back at it all, I heard a woman's voice not more than a foot from my ear. Can you do me a favor? I jumped back from the door. A young woman's face was looking at me through the small iron-grated window in the large gate. She continued on. I'm sorry, but my father will kill me if I don't get a picture of Shelley's grave. Can you take a picture of it for me? I was a little put off. 
but I'm locked in here. I need to find a way to get out. She then said, Oh, wow, I'm really sorry, but I have to get back. I'm late. My heart took over, and I finally said, Well, slide it through the grate then. She did so, and I proceeded to walk over to Shelley's grave and take a picture for her. I gave it back to her, and she thanked me profusely as she turned and scattered off. I turned back around, my eyes a little more wide open now. It seemed a lot quieter than it had only minutes before. The whole place seemed to be settling down for an evening's rest. I knew I had to get out of there by nightfall. Sleeping in a cemetery with 200-year-old ghosts was not one of those things on my list of to-dos before I die. I began to walk around the edge of the place to see if there was an easy spot to squeeze through or hop over. But this place was like a fortress. Along the back wall, which was the higher end of the grounds, the thick wall was perhaps climbable, but the other side was a high drop, like jumping from a castle. As I walked along, I noticed every movement. Your senses reach deep in those times. They find some sort of super-sensing power that we never need in the modern world. I was picking out grasshopper steps and the exhales of birds. Anything and everything was marked and tagged by my ultra-aware brain. A falling leaf crashing to the ground would hold my attention for a wide-eyed 15 seconds. Have you ever been in the forest alone at night? Maybe just walking out for a bit of a stroll from a campsite? You immediately become enveloped by that world of swaying trees and the simple rustling of twigs. What compounded my feeling, though, was that I knew I wasn't supposed to be there. And the funny thing was that I felt like the graves there were more aware of me, more focused on my presence than when I was simply a visitor along with all the other daily visitors they must see. This was their time, their quiet time when they could rest, and here I was lurking around like a slithering grave robber. I then got the brilliant idea that I could simply climb the pyramid and then slide down the other side to freedom. The pyramid acts as a part of the wall in one area, so the pyramid is half in the cemetery and half in the open near a road. It's almost 30 meters high, but unfortunately it's unbelievably steep. It was built by the Romans around 10 BC and is completely smooth on the sides. The wall that ran into it was more than 25 feet high, So I gave up there and moved on. I finally decided I was going to have to somehow climb the wall near Shelley's grave. I actually gathered together some old, ancient, crumbled column pieces and stacked them up to be able to climb to the top of the wall. I was barely able to pull myself up to the top, and I then was able to look over at the other side. Unfortunately, the ground on the other side was lower down than the ground on this side. It was going to be quite a jump down. I then got another brilliant idea of slowly lowering myself down the wall while hanging on the top so that then I could drop down from a lower position. Just before I began to make my move down the other side, I took one last look back at Shelley's grave. I remember just giving him a knowing smile, and I, at the moment, felt privileged that I was able to have that time there with him with them. It was an intimate time, a real time. I wasn't a tourist, and they weren't a show for me. We were just there.
there together. I then turned back to freedom and slowly began to inch my body over the edge. There was one problem. The top of the thick wall was curved. As I began to slide over the edge, I couldn't grab onto anything. And I realized, as I began to slip quicker, that I was just going to have to turn and jump. I pushed my body away from the large wall and crashed down into the ground with more power than I was expecting. My knees slammed into my chest and I was crushed down and then I tumbled over to a frazzled stop. The jolt of my body was strong enough to break my camera. I got up, brushing off the dirt and dust. As I'm doing this, I casually look up and down across the small side road a little bit were a group of locals all standing in a group just staring at me. They had these puzzled looks on their faces. But it wasn't a puzzled look like, what's the capital of New Hampshire? It was a puzzled look like, can you believe what we just saw and should we go grab him and do evil things to him? Well, I wasn't going to find out what they decided to do. I immediately started running. I ran all the way back to the Coliseum and then many more miles past that to get back to where I was staying. I don't know if I ran the path of any traditional race that is held in Rome, but if I did, I certainly broke all the records. I've never been back to that cemetery, but I will be there again someday. Someday. I want to leave you with a poem by Keats. When I have fears that I may cease to be, before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain, before high-piled books in charactery hold like rich garners the full ripened grain, when I behold upon the night-starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance and think that I may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance, and when I feel, fair creature of an hour, that I shall never look upon thee more, never have relish in the fairy power of unreflecting love, then on the shore of the wide world I stand alone and think till love and fame to nothingness do sink. We should all be so fortunate as to feel such power of emotions. Nothing is down or off about that. That is what life should be, the feeling of raw, concrete truth. In this poem, he allows the rough reality of death to wash away the significance of love and his writing, as if they are reduced to nothing. But here he is sharing these thoughts in a passionate poem, and he refers to the beauty of unreflecting love, which is real love not built upon his lover's reciprocation of that love. He doesn't really believe in the insignificance of it all. He is allowing those emotions, those fears, to take away the purpose of things, but it is only temporary, a fleeting escape. He knows, it's in his skin, that it's all worth it, that it's all beautiful. Life can be filled with tough emotions, as it was for him in his final years. But do we ever feel more alive? Are we ever more affected by life than when we confront the great fortune of rough emotions? That brings us to a close. So until next time, I wish you well, and don't forget to follow nature's lead.